0: Thank you very much Jenna and uh, I'll, I'll echo what she said you know opportunity for life groups to serve together uh, you build you build your community uh, when you go and serve and do uh, do the work of the Lord together and so if you have that opportunity uh, if your group is interested please see Jenna uh, and you can reach out to me and I'll help as well uh, so so good morning, but glad to see everybody today. Um, we are starting a new series in the book of Philippians. So through the month of no, uh, October and November, we're going to work uh, through the book of Philippians. Sometimes we're going to work a little faster than we want because there's a lot. <laughs> we, could spend, we could spend months uh, just, just slowly working through the book of Philippians uh, and the joy of the Lord, the concept of, of being joyful and ha- living a joyful Christian life. Um, but I got a question for you today, uh, and maybe I'll lose you uh, uh, right here at the start. But, but what is your happy place? What's your happy place? You know, this is the, the idea, right? I, this is probably not an old idea, or not a very old idea. But this idea is, is where do you go to just relax, right? What do, what do you do to just uh, enjoy yourself? Maybe it's the beach, Maybe the beach is your happy place and you go and, and, and there's nothing that you look forward to more than going to the beach and, and sitting in the sand and, and, and listening to the ocean. Um, maybe, it's the, uh, it, maybe it's golf. Maybe you find your, uh, your, your happy places when you're on the green and you're, uh, you're chipping away or whatever, swinging that golf. I don't know. I, don't, I haven't played in years. Um, maybe your happy place is a cup of coffee and a good book right? The, the, there's quiet, there's, kids are, the kids are in bed and it's rest time or, or the kids uh, have gone to bed for the night or maybe the kids are at grandparents, uh, right? And you just have some time to yourself to read and, uh, and maybe that's your happy place. Uh, maybe it's with friends, right? Maybe you're gathered around the, uh, Saturday is college football. I'm a college football guy. And so maybe it's Saturday you're gathered around the television and you're cheering on uh, your favorite football team or Sunday night, right? Sunday night is, uh, I guess, NFL, right? So maybe it's gather, gathering together with family. Maybe it's shopping. Uh, maybe it's not me. I do not like going shopping. Uh, I, I, I really, online shopping is the best invention ever, right? I love it. But maybe shopping is your happy place and you just, you get to relax when you go. Or maybe it's, it's sitting around the dinner table with your family. Maybe it's, it's, it's kind of sharing a meal together. Maybe that's your happy place. You know, there are a lot of things in this world that bring us happiness and many of them are good. Many of them are good. But when we look at the book of Philippians, we're going to look at true joy. And true joy that is not dependent on circumstances and that is only found in Jesus Christ. So today, as we start this series, and we're going to walk through the book of Philippians. Our desire is that we get a picture of what that joyful life looks like. Uh, Paul had it. At the time that Paul's writing this letter, Paul is in jail, right? He's not only in jail, but he spends his day chained to a Roman guard. All day long, he, he's on house arrest. He's waiting for the moment that he can go and and defend himself before Caesar. Right? He's gone through some some horrific events where he he was tried to be, he tried to be killed by a mob. Uh, he spent two years in jail in Caesarea. Uh, he was on the way to Rome after he appealed to Caesar. He was in a shipwreck. Uh, right? I mean, he is not. This has not been an easy few years. But Paul, as he writes this letter, you're going to see his joy come out in everything his right. The The book of Philippians is not actually about joy, but we see his joy in everything that he writes. And so as we work through this, we want you to see uh, the picture of the joyful life. Uh, Because he even, despite his circumstances, despite being in jail and uh, chained to a Roman guard, um, and despite things that he was hearing from other churches, right? When he's in jails, when he writes many of his epistles, and he hears about false teachers in churches, and uh, he hears about uh, others that are trying to discredit him, he hears about uh, fellow believers in Jesus Christ who are suffering and being persecuted, and yet he's able to have joy. In all those things, he's able to rejoice and he's able to worship. And so today, our focus is going to be how do you have joy, how, how joy in knowing Christ leads us to worship. How joy in knowing Christ leads us to worship. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, I confess that I, I'm not always the most joyful person. That my eyes are not always upon you, and Lord, I don't take I, I don't take the benefits and the uh, uh, the blessings that that come from walking in faith and looking towards you at all times. Lord, I pray that you'd forgive me for that, and Lord, I pray that you would challenge me as we look at your word to to Lord give you everything. I pray that you would help us today. Help us to focus upon you to lift you up in our hearts and in our minds, Lord, in our time together. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and you would fill us with joy that comes from knowing you. God, you are amazing, and we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name. So the book of Philippians is, is, I kind of alluded to it a second ago, it's not really a how-to book on how how to have joy. So we're having the theme of the series is the joy of the Lord. But what you're going to see is Paul's life and Paul's words and Paul's heart continually come across with the word joy. We're going to see that picture of a joy-filled life. And as we go through the letter, we're going to see Paul's love for the church of Philippi. Paul, and, uh, uh, Paul, Paul loved the church, and we're going to see his confidence in the sovereignty of God, and we're going to see the comfort he gets from community uh, together. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells the church at Corinth, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? And that's, that's kind of my desire for today, as we look at Philippians chapter 1 and the first 18 verses, is that we would look at Paul's life and we would seek to imitate him, uh, because Paul was able to be filled with joy, because joy is not something you can manufacture. It's not positive. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's not your best life now, right? It's not I And mean, we try harder and do more. That's not joy. Joy comes from knowing Jesus Christ, which leads us into worship. So what do we find in Paul's life that made him so, so joyful? First thing we're going to see is that he surrendered himself completely to Jesus Christ. And so the challenge to us is surrender yourself completely to Jesus Christ. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter, Philippians chapter 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in verse 1, uh, he says that he, Paul calls himself, he introduces himself as the servant of Christ, right? And if you have the, uh, he introduces not only himself, but also Timothy. If you have the King James or you have the new King James, it's going it's to use the word um, uh, servants. But if you have the ESV and the uh, NIV, sorry, I got that wrong. I had it written down. It's someplace. I jumped ahead. But he introduces himself and Timothy as bondservants. And the, the Greek word for bondservants here is slaves. And so he's introducing himself to the, to the Philippian church as a slave of Christ. Now, in many of his other letters, Paul introduces himself as an apostle because he's he's trying to, in essence, establish his authority. In other churches, there's false teachings. There's there's teachings that that you to be saved, you not only must believe in Jesus Christ, but you also must do something else, right? You have to contribute. You have to uh, you have to become a Jewish. You have to be circumcised. You have to have some special knowledge. But here, Paul is writing to this church that he loves, and he's writing to them as a slave, and he's writing to them as a slave of Christ who is the perfect master, who's perfect in justice and righteousness and loving kindness. He's introducing himself as a slave, and it would likely have shocked his audience because they don't view Paul as lowly. But Paul is saying, I'm nothing. Christ is everything, right? He he is saying, next to Christ, I am nothing, and I will do anything and everything that God wants me to do. Now this is a church that that Paul loves dearly. In Acts chapter sixteen, Paul uh, and and Timothy and Silas they they go. Uh, they go to Philippi and they plant a church and they meet when they're in Philippi, they, they meet a woman named Lydia, who's a businesswoman, very well off, very, uh, uh, very, very wealthy in terms of her business being successful. And, and they lead her to Christ. They run into a slave girl who, uh, who is, who is, um, uh, who is making her master a lot of money through, uh, through kind of spirit telling, right? And they lead her to Christ and they, they lead the jailer to Christ who, who kind of watches over them when they get arrested after they cause a riot. And so it, This is a church that that he dearly loves, that that he's helped start, and he wants them to see very clearly from the beginning, he's like, I am nothing, and Christ is everything. And as we go through the first 18 verses, uh, in the 18 verses that we're going to see, we see Jesus Christ mentioned 11 times. And so Paul's focus is on the Lord. His focus is on his master and his savior. But most of us, we aren't slaves to Christ. Paul said he was a slave to Christ, and that meant that he would give his everything for Christ. He would give his very best. He would, put his, uh, we, he would put Jesus and his desires first in his life, and that he would obey regardless of the cost, regardless of what was asked of him. He would give everything. I don't know if in my life I truly give him everything. Everything. I don't know if I truly give Jesus my best. Sometimes I just fit him in. On Friday, I was reading through the the book of Malachi and my personal devotions. And in in chapter one, God is having a conversation with the priests. And in Malachi chapter one, verse six, this is what he says uh, to the priests: He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? And God goes on to answer them. and He says, you don't bring me your best. When it's time for the sacrifice and the offering, when, when it's time for you to bring to me what I've asked you to bring, you don't bring the best of your flock. You don't bring the best of your lamb. You bring the sick and the lame and the blind. He says you you don't you, you wouldn't dare to offer the same governor the same to the governor would that he come to your house but to God you say he'll be okay with it. He's okay? He'll forgive. God says, he's saying to the and this is what I got out of it. He he I was challenged because it says, "Do I bring my leftovers to God?" If your boss were coming to dinner, right? Whoever your boss is, if your boss were going to come to dinner at your house, would you feed him leftovers? Or would you give him your best? Because that's what we do. That's what I do to my Savior. I give him my leftovers far too often, far too easily, and think that that's okay. That's enough. But to be a slave to Christ means He gets our best. It means we don't just squeeze Him in when we have time. It doesn't mean. It means that He's the top priority in our lives, knowing Him and worshiping Him and serving and giving back to Him. So look back with me at verse 1 and 2. Um, so Paul is a slave to Christ, right? His identity, in essence, Paul's identity is rooted in Christ. Without Christ, he's nothing. Without Christ, he's nothing. But Christ is his master, and so Christ is everything. But he's not, he, he can be a slave to Christ because he, he calls the church in Philippi, uh, at the end of verse 1, He says he, says that he calls them saints right? And he's a saint. And you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a saint, not because you are perfect, not because you do everything right and you you follow in complete obedience, not because they or us have done anything extraordinary right? To be a saint is nothing other than the fact that you have decided to trust and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are called saints because positionally, that is how God looks upon us. When he looks upon us, he doesn't see the unworthiness that we bring to him. He doesn't see the sin and the shame that we would have without him. He looks upon us and he sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees, he sees us covered in the blood of Christ, and we are made perfect. He sees what we will be when this life is over. Right? Ryan talked about he's resurrecting me in this process of sanctification, this process of ongoing being made into the image of Christ. But one day it's going to be complete. One day we will get to be perfect and we'll no longer be in these bodies that that are frail and sick and suffer from the fallen world. We we, will no longer be tempted by sin, but we will be in the presence of the glory of God. And so he can be a slave to Christ because he's a saint, because God has already worked in his life and he's already made him who he's going to be in the future. He can be a slave to Christ In verse 2, because he knows that peace and grace flow to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew that true joy comes through complete submission to Jesus Christ. Paul also knew that true joy comes through partnering with others in the gospel. True joy comes through partnering with others in the gospel. So become a gospel partner. Verses 3 through 8. I thank my God in all remembrance of you always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So Jenna, I really appreciate it. Oh, she's in the nursery now, I think. Um, but I really appreciate it because as Jenna was sharing about, uh, about, the, about echoes, I was thinking about that, this idea of becoming a gospel partner right? This idea of working alongside one another and seeking to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ, seeking to exalt him and draw other men uh, and women and children to him. And so it's this idea that that Paul is, he's given us a picture of community. He's given us a picture of fellowship, right? In verse five, um, in verse five, the, the, the word will be, uh, it's the, Participation. The New American Standard uses the word participation in the gospel, uh, but the uh, it's koinonia, right? It's koinonia. And so in the in the King James and the New King James, it's fellowship. And in the ESV and the NIV, it's uh, it's this idea of, uh, of partnering uh, or partnership. Now we use this word. Right, often when we we use this word in the Greek, uh, it's translated as fellowship because it identifies the special relationship that we can have as Christians. Right, we have the same Lord and the same Master. The same Spirit lives within us if we're followers of Jesus Christ. Right, we have the same hope, and so this idea of koinonia says that we have a special relationship as believers and followers of Jesus Christ that is beyond any connection that we can have with somebody outside of the fellowship of the church, outside of, of following the Lord. And so there's a special bond. Uh, there's a special connection that exists in knowing and trusting and worshiping Jesus Christ is at the center of that. In verse 6, Paul speaks So this idea of fellowship and partnership. He speaks of the confidence that he has uh, that God has not yet done, right? He's in Verse 2, he says they're saints. And in verse 6, he's saying, you, you, I know you don't feel that way. I know you're not experiencing that today, but you will. You will get there. God is not done. He will, uh, he will complete the work that he's done uh, in them. And so we can, we can have this fellowship because we all recognize that we're sinners saved by grace, daily being made into the perfect image of Christ. You see how that's important, right? I mean, if, if Grant, if I mess up and I hurt Grant uh, because I say something or I fail to, to meet an obligation that I had to him, he, he, can, he, can have, he can show me forgiveness because he's experienced forgiveness. And he can do that because he knows that he's a sinner just as much as I am. And we can have this special bond because we're struggling, we're, we're, we're wrestling with the fact that we still have this sinful nature uh, that lives uh, as part of our bodies. And so we're sinners saved by grace, daily being made into the perfect image of Christ. And that's our desire. That's, that's this idea of koinonia. It's the foundation for which allows us to have community and do life together. But Paul doesn't, it, 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 but it is deeper than just fellowship, right? Sometimes we think fellowship, we're going to have a meal together, right? We're going to have a meal together and we're going to talk about what God's doing in our lives, but that's, that's, that's not enough. Paul is saying there's partnership or there's a participation in the gospel. And so there's this idea that we are going together to share the gospel with people that need it because it is our hope. It is our joy. It, it is what defines our lives, right? It's, it's our identity. And we want others to experience that with us. And so true fellowship is going to come through partnering together to go and to tell others. There's a If you've been on a mission trip, right? If you've been on a mission trip, when you come home, there's a special bond that you have with those that you've served with. Because you have spent a week, typically a week or maybe longer, if the Lord blesses that, that you've spent a week together with your eyes focused on Christ and your goal to share the gospel with wherever you're going. There's a special bond in partnering together. And so that's what Paul is speaking of uh, in verse 6 or in verse 5 when he says, he says, your participation in the gospel. They are working together. They are co-laboring together alongside each other. And Paul is filled with joy because there's others that are laboring alongside him for the advancement of the gospel. Verse 7, he says that they are partakers of grace with him, and verse eight that he longs for them with all affection. A partner is not only one who go is not one that goes alone, but one that goes with others. And when Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them out in pairs. And when uh, Paul is going around planting churches, he doesn't go by himself. He goes with uh, he goes with Barnabas, or he goes with Timothy and Silas, or Luke or John Mark. There's others that are going alongside with him. And this is this idea of partnership. It's the idea, the reason that we're going is that others might hear the gospel. There is nothing, I'm going to promise you something. If you've experienced the gospel, if you've experienced salvation through Jesus Christ, I can promise you the most exhilarating thing that you can ever experience in your life is telling somebody else how to be saved. It's telling somebody else the message of hope and joy and fullness that comes through Jesus Christ alone. It's something that, that we, we, we kind of settle for the leftovers, right? We don't settle for the fullness that comes from sharing the gospel. And Paul is saying we should be doing that together. And so in your life groups or in your small groups or your Bible studies, whatever, I, I pray that if you've had the opportunity, if God's given you the opportunity to share the gospel, the message of salvation with somebody, that you would share it with your group because they would be encouraged because there's no greater joy. A couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, Andrew came home uh, from school, and, and he, he came down into my office. So I worked from home, right? My, my day job, I worked from home. And so he came downstairs, and he was out of breath because uh, he had to been, he had to run, uh, have run down the street uh, to get home. And, and he started to tell me how he, God had given him the opportunity to share the gospel with, with somebody on, on the bus and he was just like he he could not stand still he was bouncing off the walls literally because he was so excited that he got to tell somebody about Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ can do and the hope that he has in the future and the confidence that he has in who Jesus is and that is the most exhilarating thing that we can experience but we don't we're scared we're busy We settle for something less. But Paul had a joyful life because he and the Philippian Christians were gospel partners, but also because he sought to know the Savior more deeply. So seek to know the Savior more deeply, verses 9 through 11. He says, In this I pray. That your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Earlier in the chapter, Paul, in verse 4, he tells them that he always prays with joy for them. In these verses, in verse 9, he, we begin to see what he specifically prays. Uh, he, he prays that their love may abound more and more. That, in essence, he wants their love to continue to grow. And so how does that, how does that grow? In verse 9, he says, I pray that your love may abound or that it, it may grow still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So how does your love grow? It grows through knowing Christ more and better. This is not knowledge that puffs up, that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 8.1, right? This is not knowledge without love, which is nothing and useless and worthless, that Paul speaks of in, in 1 Corinthians 13. This is knowledge, in verse 9, this is knowledge that leads to more love, that leads to a love that continues to grow. And Paul is giving us the reasons and motivations to know Christ better. He's given us reasons and motivations to read and study the word of God. He's given us reasons to make preaching a priority in our worship. Did, did anybody, when we move the preaching earlier in the service, is that weird for you? Right? Sometimes, because it's different, right? We typically sing, we'll sing our four or five songs and then the sermon will be afterwards because then we've worshiped and now it's time for the word. But the word is a center, a central part of worship, it's a center, uh, it's, a, it's an important priority for us as a church because as we look at God's Word, it should draw us into worship because we're focused on our Savior, we're focused on the One who offers us hope and joy and life everlasting. We should pursue knowing Christ more deeply because that will increase our love and love for each other and love for the lost and love for our Savior. And that's what we desire out of this time when we're together in worshiping God through His Word. Our ultimate, in verse ten, in verse ten, we're reminded that we wait, we wait until the day that Christ will return. And I have a, I have a memory of a of a lady. She's still, uh, God hasn't taken her home yet. But our dear lady at our last church, uh, Miss Liz, would always say, "Oh, I can't wait till I go home. Oh, I can't wait till I go home." The day that she gets to go home to be with her Savior, right? This is the hope and the joy that we have of the fact that Christ will come back, and one day we will get to be with Christ. In verse 11, that, that we're being transformed through knowing him and loving him. And at the end of verse 11, all for the glory and praise of God. There's no loftier goal or higher purpose than to bring glory to God in heaven. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the almighty and all power and all authority rest in him. He's a jealous God who desires for us to know him and to worship him alone. He's a He is a loving and gracious God who who, while we were yet sinners, came and died for us. He is that in him we might be able to find forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. And Paul says that to do that right? To bring glory to him who is worthy of all glory, right? When we talk about worship, when we talk about worship, it's about, it's about assigning worth or value to something. And so God is worthy of worship because he, is, he he is deserving. And Paul is saying we need to be growing in love through knowledge and discernment. And that's why we have... That's why preaching and the word of God is central to our worship service on Sunday mornings. And that's why it needs to be central. uh, The scriptures need to be central to your daily reading, your daily activities, because you need to worship him on a daily basis. When you read the Bible, it should be a time of worship. As our minds turn to God and God draws our hearts to him, it should be a time of worship. But why do we, why do so few of us Read or when you struggle to read. Maybe you get, you get started and you're like, I know I need to read the Bible. I know I need to. I know God, it pleases God. It brings, it brings honor and glory to Him if I do it, but I just don't get anything out of it, right? I read it and then I'm like, okay, then you put it down and you forget what you read by, the, by an hour into, into your work day. Uh, why, do we, why, why do we not make it a priority or why, uh, why is it just so easily to be a mental exercise? And I think one of the keys... One of the keys to the joyful Christian life is being able to worship God on a daily basis through his word. And I think for, for, all, for most of us, it's because we don't know when we read, we don't know how to be drawn into worship. It really is a mental exercise. It really is, okay, what is this? What do I learn from this? Right? It's not, okay, God, show me yourself in this. And so I I, this is not new, but, but I wanted to give you some practical tips to how can you be drawn into worship when you read the word? Because, because maybe you, you're not, and maybe you're like, I need to, but you're afraid that when you start, you're going to be bored again. You're, going to, you're not going to get anything out of it, or it's just going to be one more thing on the to-do list. It's not going to be something that draws you and changes you. You said, I've tried it. So I just want to give you some practical tips. These are not magic, uh, and I've, I can promise you I've stolen them from somebody, but I don't know who they came from, okay? Um, <clears throat> first of all, just three questions that you, can, that you can ask yourself, three questions that I ask myself that helps draw me into worship. First, what does this passage teach me about God? Does it teach me about God's holiness? Does it teach me about the jealousy of God, how much he loves me, that he is is jealous for me, right? Does it teach me about his gracious compassion? And, you know, what does it teach me about God? And then when you say, okay, it teaches me about God and these things, then you can praise, you can adore God through that. You say, God, you're amazing. I can't believe that you created all this. Right? When you read Genesis chapter 1, it's just like, God, that's amazing. This just teaches me that you're the creator. And that is an amazing thing that I should adore you for because you are worthy of it. You should rejoice. What is this? Second question is, what does this passage teach me about me? Now, this is hard because you've got to be careful. You don't want to project yourself into the passage, uh, but we can relate, right? If you're reading about Abraham and how God has promised Abraham that he is going to be a great nation and that he's going to give him many descendants, more numerous that can be counted, and you see Abraham marry his servant girl because his wife can't have a baby and they have a baby, and God says, no, that's not my plan. You can say, I'm like that. I'm like that. I don't trust God enough. I try to help him out, right? Or you're reading about David and and you're reading about how David's facing Goliath and and you're like, I do not have that much faith, right? So what does it teach me about God? What does it teach teach me about me? Because in what it teaches you about me, it's gonna bring you to a point of confession or a point of thanksgiving because even if it's a good thing, right? Even if it's a good thing, it's only by the grace of God that it's a good thing that he's shown you. And the last thing, third question is, what do I need to do about it? What do I need to do about it? How do you apply the passage to your life? Uh, And then as a result of it, as a result of it, you go to God in supplication and in petition, and you ask him for his help. How do you get drawn into worship through your daily word? Because Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, that knowing Christ should lead us into worship. Knowing Christ should lead us into worship and will give us a life filled with joy. When you desire to glorify God, you seek to know him more deeply so that your love will abound. Paul's life was a joy-filled life because he surrendered himself completely to Christ, because he partnered with others in the gospel, because he desired to know the Savior more deeply, and because he knew his circumstances were being used for God's purpose. So point number four is trust God, that God has a purpose in your circumstances. Read with me verse 12 through 18. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, we are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but also some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Paul was able to have joy despite his circumstances because he knew that Christ had a purpose. Right? Verse 12 through 13, Paul says that his imprisonment has furthered the gospel. He spends his day chained to a Roman Praetorian guard, and there's probably about 9,000 Praetorian guards in, uh, in Rome. And so he was chained to probably four of them every day, right? Every six hours they would rotate through. And so he was chained to four men every day that would likely never have heard the gospel unless he was in prison right there with them. And they could take the message back to this guard, this elite group of soldiers that would never have heard the message. And while he was in prison, uh, Roman officials, they knew that he was going to present or come before Caesar, and so Roman officials would have come and, and questioned him and talked with him. and he was getting to share the gospel with the Roman government, and he would not have gotten to do that had he not been in prison. Warren Weersby said that um, he said Paul wanted to go to Rome as a preacher, but instead he went as a prisoner. Paul wasn't discouraged by that. Paul, Paul, Paul rejoiced in that. He was filled with joy because he was a prisoner. And because he was a prisoner, he got to share the gospel with people that didn't get to hear it otherwise. He got to go. The Roman guards would have gotten to see his joy he would have been meeting with Timothy and others uh, that were with him, and he would have gotten to hear from about what churches were going on. They would have heard him, him dictate his letters. They would, they would have heard his joy and his confidence in the Lord, despite what he heard. They got to see his life. And the same is true for you. I believe that you live on the street that you live on, and you work where you work for a purpose. God has placed you there, wherever you're at, he 's placed you there for the further the further advancement of the gospel. if you find yourself in the hospital um, I, 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 a couple weeks ago a month ago uh, melanie Ellis was was sharing and uh, she she had been in the hospital again and and she was just very discouraged and and she talked about how how she got to share the gospel with a patient that was in the room with her, four patients in a room. OK, I mean, most of us would be bitter and hurting and angry and just self-centered. And, and Melanie says that's kind of where she was. And yet God gave her somebody that she could share the gospel with. I believe that God, if you're sick and you, you're with, meeting with doctors or you're in the hospital, that God has given you opportunities to tell about the greatness of God to patients and nurses and doctors that you wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity. A month ago, I think it was a month ago I, I went to a funeral of a pastor, and um, the testimonies that they shared were he, he was struggling with cancer for well over a year and uh, the testimonies that they share is that when he was there he he sought to minister to the uh, to the nurses and the doctors and the other patients. And, and here's a guy that is facing stage four cancer and there's really no hope. And yet he's going around to the other patients and say, Hey, can I pray with you? Hey, how, how can I encourage you? I believe that whatever happens in your life, God is doing something to place you in people's lives that you can make an impact and you can share the gospel with them. Paul trusted God in his circumstances, and he rejoiced. He even rejoiced. This, this is a weird passage, all right? I'll just admit it. This is a weird passage. Uh, he even rejoiced when there were other preachers who spoke badly of him. Okay? Okay? There were other preachers that spoke badly of him, right? So in verse 15 through, through 17, he's talking about uh, that even in this, right? Some that are preaching out of envy and strife in verse 17, in verse, or 15, sorry, in verse 17, they're, they're proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, and they're thinking to cause me distress, right? So these are, these are not good men. Right. These are not who we want to hire for the next pastor of Mount Calvary Church. Right. But these are these are Paul's rejoicing. And it's kind of odd. I, I, I just admit it, because in other books, other letters that Paul writes, he comes down hard on teachers that are not doing things right on false teachers. He, but but the difference here is these guys are getting the message right. These guys are proclaiming Christ. In other letters, he's addressing the fact that they're adding to salvation and they're requiring the fact that you must do more than just believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. And so he comes down on them because that is the gospel. That is the most important thing. But here he's saying, I don't care what you say about me. You're proclaiming Christ. I'm going to rejoice. You're telling other people how they must be saved and they can be saved only in Jesus Christ. I'm going to rejoice. I don't, care. Uh, I, I don't care what you say about me. I don't care uh, what you do. Paul is gospel-focused, and so all that mattered to him was that the gospel was proclaimed. I learned, um, I'm grateful for God for this, I, have, I, I learned something about myself as we stepped down from our last church uh, before God brought us to Mount Calvary, uh, that whether a preacher was good or bad, whether a preacher's style was my preferred style or not, or whether there was something about the man that preaching that I disliked I learned that I could rejoice when the gospel was proclaimed. And I can't say I was like that. I can't say that 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 I, I God must have done something in my life and I didn't notice it because because I'm selfish and self-centered and and prideful and yet. If the gospel is proclaimed, we can have joy. Whether it's done well or bad, we can have joy. We can rejoice because it is the message that everybody needs to hear. And it it's the message that should fill us with joy and hope because we are reminded of what God has done in us. When you hear that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have everlasting life, your heart should be filled with joy. But often it's like, oh, yeah that's too simple. That's too basic. That's not important enough. Oh, give me something deeper and richer, right? But no, the gospel is what we need and we need to rejoice. It's not too simple. Even if there's something wrong with the messenger, if they get the gospel right, you should be able to rejoice. And in your circumstances, God's purpose is the advancement of the gospel for you to understand it better and for you to share it with someone. In just a minute, our worship team's going to come, and we're going to continue in worship. And today, you can worship the Lord God Almighty because true joy is not found in your circumstances. True joy is found in knowing Jesus Christ, which leads you to worship. And if it doesn't, right, if it doesn't lead you to worship, then it's just head knowledge. It's not affected your heart. Because the more that you know him, the more your heart should rejoice The more amazed you should become at how much he loves you, and the more convinced you will be that he is all that you need. True joy is found in knowing Jesus Christ, which leads us to worship. But maybe you're here today and you don't know that joy. Maybe you you don't know that and you haven't experienced that, but you want to. You're like, that sounds great. It's not hard or complicated, but it is costly. It's costly. It cost Jesus Christ his his life on the cross where he died for you and for me that through the shedding of his blood we might find forgiveness of sins. But he didn't stay dead. On the third day he rose again and because of that we we can have hope and confidence that one day we will be resurrected as well. It was costly. And if you choose to believe in him and trust in him it will cost you your life as well. He'll change it. You don't have to change it. He'll change it for you. Paul shows us that we're to be slaves in Christ, and that's not a bad thing. That's an amazing thing. And today, if you want to experience that joy, if you want to, if you want to experience that joy, then come and follow Jesus. It's easy. You go to God and you say, God, I'm, I'm a sinner. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for me. Thank you for, for raising him from the dead. Forgive me my sins and make me your child today. You don't have to use those words. You don't even have to have every answer to every question that you have today. You just have to choose to follow him and give him your life. As we pray, you can do that. As we sing, you can do that where you're sitting. If you have questions or you want to share that, then come find me after the service. I'll be up here at the front, but there'll be some other men that will be at the doors. One of the elders after the service, we'd be happy to pray with you, and we'd be happy to rejoice with you. Let's pray and continue in worship. God, you are great and awesome. Lord, you are worthy of all of our worship. And Lord, I pray that you would help me. Lord, that, that your word, uh, whether it be here now or Lord, whether it be at home when I'm reading, Lord, that it wouldn't just be a mental exercise, but Lord, that you draw me to you, that you teach me about you, that you teach me about myself and you help change my life, and Lord, that you draw me into worship, that knowing you would abound and increase my love. God, I pray that you help us to see that you are all that we need. Help us to give you our very best and not our leftovers. God, thank you for loving us, for dying for us, and for loving us. It's in your name that we pray.